Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Templey. sexual nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people i do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show the facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims my description of the crime scenes are what i saw with my own two eyes if you're going to get offended, please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. And today, y'all, we're going to continue um, and try to finish up the series Nanny Knot. I'm going to go as far as I can. We'll see if we can get it done or not. But stay tuned at the end of the show for some announcements. I want to tell each and every one of y'all how much we love and appreciate you. Thank you for sharing us and liking us. And thank you for everybody who took the time to vote for the People's Choice Podcast Awards. I really appreciate that. So love y'all. Thank you, everyone of you and patron members. Thank you so much for your continued support. So that being said, I'm going to get right into it. All right. Now, I'm going to call this episode Nanny Not the Second Arrest. So when I left you last, Evelyn McKnight had told her cousin to call the cops and tell them that baby Matthew had been thrown off a bridge. Long story short, they, she gets in, she gets in about, interviewed by Mr. Kearney Foster and uh, Jennifer Love with the FBI, and she changes her story from not knowing anything to that her son, Rodney, went and rode with Bobby Jordan and threw baby Matthew off the bridge. This is after Rodney allegedly saw Jordan masturbating over the baby and after Matthew was recovered from the treetops, if you will. And by that, I mean trees that were falling down in the water on that part of the Tickfall River. He was snagged up, hung up naked in the treetop, and the autopsy was done. It had been a week later. Autopsy was done. And it was proven that he actually drowned. He was alive when they threw him in the water like a piece of trash. But the autopsy also showed the bowels, his intestines were extended out of his anus 
probable rape, probably, um, but the, they couldn't say definitively because of the amount of time, the week or whatever had gone by that he had been in the water. So I would tell you this. Evelyn knew that her son, Rodney, was scheduled to do a polygraph, okay? And I think she was afraid of what Rodney was going to go in there and say. Now, obviously, Rodney's story had been had been that he woke up, got the baby up, out, put him on the floor for the bottle, came back in, saw, oh, yeah, came back in, saw the masturbation, goes back in and asked to wash the car, comes back out, goes back in his mama's room later, comes back out, and Bobby Jordan made him ride to throw baby Matthew off the bridge. That's what the story was. I think that Evelyn wanted to get out in front of this, that the nanny wanted to get out in front of this, you know, and give this version of the story. So when they interviewed Rodney, that's what he said, right? The problem was, what she didn't realize, well, they, they immediately, first of all, arrested Bobby Jordan on the, on the 20th. And based off of Evelyn's statement and then Rodney's statement, okay? But guess what? They didn't cancel the polygraph for Rodney. And so he would go in, they would have to get a waiver. Of course, Evelyn said, oh, yeah, I want, I want to take a polygraph and I want, you know, whatever, whatever. And she did, you know, she did not want Rodney going in and doing it. And now I'm going to tell you why. Okay, so on the 21st, the day after Bobby Jordan was arrested, Rodney goes in. And I'm going to read a little bit for y'all and some, I don't mess anything up and then I'll, then I'll tell you what it, what exactly happened. Okay. He goes in for the polygraph and this is the version of the story that he gives. He said that, um, during the interview, he stated that he went to bed at approximately 10 PM and Matthew was asleep. And, you know, Matthew sleeps in Rodney's room in the crib uh, he said at 7 o'clock a.m. approximately, he got up and Matthew was awake and he took the baby to the living room, made a pallet and fixed him a bottle so he could watch cartoons. Rodney stated that when he then went into his mother's room and asked could he wash the car, she told him no because it looked like rain. He then got in bed with his mother. Rodney stated he woke up back up at approximately 9 a.m., asked where Matthew was and no one seen him. He also stated he went in the living room. Robert, Robert Bobby Jordan was standing by the sofa with his pants and underwear down his knees playing with himself, and Bobby looked at him funny. Rodney turned off the TV and went and got back in the bed with his mother. Later on, when he went back out, he, he says that Robert, Bobby Jordan, he saw him carrying something out, and then Bobby, he goes outside, and Bobby Jordan makes him ride with him to throw the baby off the bridge. Okay? So he's... He sticks with that. It, it aligns with Evelyn's story. And, you know, it, it is what it is. But Bobby Jordan goes to jail for first-degree murder. and But meanwhile, Mr. Kearney wasn't going to stop. And I told you, and he's my mentor. He's the best. But he had a bunch of, you know, really good detectives working with him. But what do you do at this point? You know, 
you got two people now saying that that's what the story was. I'm sure that dog didn't quite hunt for Mr. Kearney. So he kept the polygraph scheduled. And, and they when he goes in for the polygraph, Rodney McKnight originally, okay, let's, let's go back and do the rest for a second. Polygraph process, if you've been listening to Real Life Real Crime for a long time, you know what it is. They, the examiner brings you in. They'll go through your legal documentation, which is that you have polygraph rights and you don't have to answer any certain questions you don't want to, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he'd have had to have an adult representative in the room that um, could sign, give permission for that to happen because he was a juvenile. Now, I've tested, believe it or not, I've tested children. Uh, uh, one kid that was as young as almost almost five years old, that was four years old, and that baby was putting bleach in its baby infant's infant sister's bottle, but it doesn't matter. What I'm telling you is 12 years old is damn easy enough on the polygraph. So he, Don Zolke did the polygraph, and I told you all he's the best. He was, been, he was doing it, you know, before I was even in law enforcement. So... He would have kid gloved him, walked him through the legal stuff, and then got into the medical questions, which you basically you would dumb those down for doing a twelve year old. You know, how do you feel? You have any colds or you had any broken arms or anything like that? You, you want to make sure that they're mentally and physically able to take the test. That's your call as the examiner. He gets them past that. Then he has Rodney tell him his version of the story, which is what I just told you, that Bobby Jordan forced him to ride and, and throw the baby over the bridge. Well, guess what? Then you formulate your questions, and the questions would have been, did you see Bobby Jordan throw Matthew over the bridge? Are you being truthful in your statements about what happened with Matthew that day I'm going off the top of my head. Y'all have the report, but I'm going to dig it out. And did you see anyone hurt baby Matthew, right? Well, guess what? Comes back, big time deception indicated, all right? And now the 12-year-old is lying. So what did they do? Instead of letting Don Zolke interrogate him, Mr. Kearney, and... Um, had the juvenile officer, Miss Linda Steely, who I told you about, a real sweet lady, and FBI agent Jennifer Love, who's the same one I read y'all the transcript with, interviewing, okay, for the post-test interview. And guess what happens? And I'm going to read part of this to you, and then y'all, it's going to be bad, so just hear it out. So he goes in for the polygraph. He fails, deception indicated. Zolke would have said, you know what, you're not telling the truth, son. And these detectives want to interview, or this detective and this agent want to interview. So this is his official statement, what, it, what he changed it to. Now, meanwhile, Evelyn is, is not in the room. She Remember, she's in, supposed to be bedridden and shit like that. But I better guarantee you she's shitting gold bricks, uh, wondering what the hell was going to go, you know, Rodney was going to say. Well, when confronted about the lies, um, this is what he said. Rodney stated his aunt brought him home on Thursday night of 7-14-94 at approximately 8 p.m. He said they played with Matthew until 9 p.m. 
and his mom, Evelyn McKnight, put Matthew to bed. Now, that, I'm going to stop and throw some red flags, y'all. Remember, she, Evelyn wanted her niece, April McKnight, to say that to lie and say she put the baby to bed, and then she would, you know, had Rodney say that he did it. She's trying to distance herself for, from it. But he said his mama put the baby to bed. Rodney stated the next morning on 7, he didn't, of course, I'm sure he didn't say 7.15, y'all, this is a report. 7.15.94, his mom was getting Matt from his bedroom because, now this really doesn't make sense, because he said Matthew's mom had called to say she was coming to get Matt. Rodney asked, Rodney asked his mom she needed help with Matt, and he saw Matt being baby Matthew, lying on his mom's bed and saw Evelyn, the nanny, right, giving the baby CPR and that Matthew wouldn't move. He stated his mom kept saying she was going to prison. Rodney then stated his mom told him to move the car under the carport. Rodney moved the car under the carport and went back in his mom's bedroom where she had wrapped Matthew up in a blanket. His mom then placed the baby on the floor of the car, and he, being Rodney, along with his mom, drove to a bridge where she then dropped the baby and his blanket over the bridge. Rodney stated that they went back to his home, and his mom told him to tell everyone that Bobby Jordan did it instead of her. They got back in his mom's bed in his mom's bed and cried for approximately 30 minutes and then they went back to sleep. Suck on that for a minute. Okay? Your 12-year-old is now appearing to tell the whole truth. When questioned further about y'all and I'm just I'm going for the, my head this is a little chapter I had written up he said that he actually walked into the bedroom and um matthew was you know they're blue and looks like he had some blood on his face and that evan was trying to give him cpr and she kept saying i'm going to prison but here's the deal if you've been holding up this long why are you doing it now why are you telling the whole truth well i'm gonna tell you i think it, it was um Excellent job done by, by law enforcement. And I think Evan was a lying bitch. So the only thing that in, in his statement that would concern me at all would be that that he Rodney stated that baby Matthew's mama, a populist, had called to say she was coming to get him. Well, that's not true. All right, we know that's not true. That that April called, the niece called her later on and asked, Did you did you hey, did you come pick the baby up without any of us knowing? So, but listen to this, how cold this is. She doesn't say, he doesn't say that his mama grabbed the baby and slung him, right? Says his mom then placed the baby on the floor of the car, and he, along with his mom, drove to a bridge where she then dropped the baby and then his blanket over the bridge. Now, go back to the FBI interview or the Kearney Foster and FBI interview when Mr. Kearney was asking about the blanket or Jennifer Love was asking about the blanket and she was giving details on everything for how, you know, the blanket was rough around the edges and da-da-da. You know why? Because that bitch could see it. 
she threw that blanket in the river. And it, by the way, it was never recovered. She th threw baby Matthew in the water when he was still alive. You know why? Because she's a fucking evil bitch. And, and you go back to the the baby being burned up on the on the heater. You go back to the, the, the baby being murdered, which the parents got arrested for in Tangipoa Parish. You know, if y'all, y'all, if you haven't listened to the story, you need to go back and listen to the whole thing. So you go through those things and she skates on, she skates on them this morning and the autopsy showed that he was hit with such force that it knocked his teeth through his lips. And, and I think that she did it. I don't know. This is, you know, me thinking, of course, I wasn't there. But I think that she did it in, I don't know, a person's mindset like that, but I've seen it before. I've had people who have injured babies like that. It's like they fly into a fit of rage. Maybe something happened to them when they were, when they were a kid. I don't fucking know, but it's not an excuse. A lot of us had bad things happen to us when we were kids, and, and we don't throw live babies off the br bridges. Um, but I think that she, just like those other babies, maybe there's some kind of pleasure center that goes off in her brain when, when she hurts a defenseless child like that. So I think she hit him, and she hit him a lot harder than, than she thought. And when she realized she had knocked his teeth through the side of his face, and he wasn't breathing, according to her. He wasn't breathing. She was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, it, it's going to catch up with me sooner or later. But then to have your 12-year-old son go and pull up the car. Now, all along, Rodney's been saying that he pulled up the car and asked to wash it and all that. But well, guess what? He pulled the damn car up, but it wasn't to wash it. He pulled it up because his mama was holding a baby that I don't think that she thought the baby was dead. I think that she thought, I've heard it bad enough. There's no way for me to explain it. The best thing I can do is go chunk him in the river. It's fucked up, okay? So let me tell you what happens now. They turn around uh, after the polygraph and after the statement when Rodney gives up his mama, Evelyn, and they arrested Evelyn on obstruction of justice. All right, now, why not murder? Let's talk about that. First of all, obstruction of justice in the state of Louisiana can carry up to 40 years. That's the maximum. But why not arrest her on murder? Well, here we go. Because the whole time she's saying, well, not the whole time. She, we obviously know she lied, right? And then she went and told the cousin, and they, they got her, Mr. Kern them got her in, and they get her to say it was Bobby Jordan. And now I don't know the whole thing about him with his pants down. That was pretty consistent in the two of them statements, but uh, you can't prove anything, even though it, if if they had found the baby in the river before then, maybe they could have found that the tearing and, and the, the his intestines being pulled out was probably from rape. I don't know. Maybe Evelyn did it. I don't know. And obviously there's no way to prove it. But the obstruction part, that bitch fucking lied, and she lied, and she lied. Now you think about that. You lay up in the bed playing the fucking victim and, and you defending uh, or you're supposed to be taking care of this baby and you're going to play the victim. Now let's go back to the uh, episodes like the search. You get all these people, God and everybody out there for days and days on end, including Bobby Jordan, looking for baby Matthew. And you laid up in the bed the whole fucking time and you already know. You already fucking know. 
and all you, and I would guess you're doing at that point is trying to control the situation. And when you realize that your son's going to have to go in and be polygraphed, then that's when you, you know, your genius brain comes up with, well, I'll go tell my cousin, tell him to call it in anonymously and somebody threw it over the bridge, whatever. The, the rest of it, you know, y'all know on that part. He, but she gets all these people out there looking, searching, and then she already fucking knew that she threw that baby in the river with his blanket, threw him in the river, dropped him in the river naked and threw his blanket in afterwards. I don't get it. The, the uh, Then it, she didn't know about the neighbors seeing her car coming back down George White Road and blocking in at an angle uh, and all that. So, I mean, you know, fucking, let's face it, most murderers are dumbasses. And she was a dumbass, but let's talk about what happened. So... She goes to jail, and believe it or not, she still submits to a polygraph after she's in jail. First of all, she goes to jail. They arrest her. They book her in. She didn't really say anything. They, they had brought her up to the detective's office, and she did all this falling down on the floor and you know crying, and, oh, Jesus, help me, and, and uh, I'm going to have somebody on about this in the conclusion episode that can tell you that that was actually there and what, what transpired about that. But then they book her into the jail. At some point, she called saying she wanted to see a detective, Detective Murphy Martin, great guy. He's now deceased. Uh, he taught me a lot. He's from the Albany area. And so he goes down there and advisor writes to talk to her. And she said, told him, she said, uh, uh, Mr. Martin, I just want you to tell me that everything's going to be okay. And he talked like an old bulldog. And then, I'm, and then he told her, I, I have a supplement report, y'all, and all these would be put up for the page from page. But he told her, he said, uh, the only way things are going to get any better is if you tell the whole truth. And, and you, you better find you some Jesus real quick, basically to sum it up. And he left her alone. But guess what? This narcissistic, psychopathic bitch. Okay, so she gets arrested on the um, the 21st. Then she still, oh, she asked him when, when she got arrested and they advised her right. She asked, she said, well, what, what did Rodney say? What did Rodney say uh, um, during this polygraph? What did Rodney say? And, and when they were locking up, she was like, I just want to make sure Rodney didn't say something that's going to get himself in trouble. I mean, she really believed this kid was going to be able to stand, I don't know, what, probably 40 years of investigative experience on you after he gets broke down by the polygraph by, you know, another 20 year veteran on the polygraph. Yeah. He just, he didn't stand a chance. And, and, but she's asking, well, what did Rodney say? What did Rodney say? Of course they didn't fucking tell her. Yeah. And, and, but she is still so adamant that, and she still thinks she's the smartest motherfucker in the room, that she's going to submit to her own polygraph on July 25th. Now, this I'm going to read to you, okay? I'm going to read you the whole thing because, first of all, I love reading uh, Don Zolke's work. So this is delayed, dated July 25th, 1994, and it's to Lieutenant Kearney Foster, Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office, P.O. Box, blah, blah, blah. RE polygraph examination of Miss Evelyn McKnight, so security number, case number, and it says, Dear Lieutenant Foster, on July 25th, 1994, a polygraph examination was administered to Miss Evelyn McKnight 
The main issue under consideration was whether or not Ms. McKnight is telling the truth when she claims she did not cause the death of Matthew Populus. Also under consideration was whether or not Ms. McKnight is telling the truth when she claims she did not throw Matt's body off the bridge into the river. Before her pretest interview, Ms. McKnight signed a form stating she was taking the test voluntarily. This executed form is being retained in the writer's case files. In addition, prior to Ms. McKnight's interview, the polygraphist met with Ms. McKnight's attorney, Mr. Peck Edwards, who requested that no post-test interview be conducted with Ms. McKnight. During her pretest interview and prior to the test being administered, Ms. McKnight described to this investigator what she had witnessed the, the morning of Matt's disappearance. Ms. McKnight states that after awakening that morning, she went into the living room and observed Bobby Jordan standing over Matt, who was lying on a pallet. She observed Jordan to be masturbating. She entered the room and confronted Jordan and asked him what he was doing. According to her, Jordan responded by saying that he was on his way to the bathroom, and when saying this, he pulled his pants up and sat back down on the couch. Miss McKnight states that she bent down and checked the baby and did not observe anything unusual as the baby appeared to be taking a bottle. She states that she then went back and got into bed. Miss McKnight states that at that time, no one else in the residence was awake other than she and Jordan. Miss McKnight states that sometimes later, and she is not certain how much later, she heard the front door slam. She states that she went back into the living room and observed that Jordan had exited the house and was in, in the front yard. She immediately checked the baby again and discovered that the baby appeared to be unconscious with blood coming from his mouth and a swelling on the side of the baby's face. She states that she also observed blood on the baby's gown. She states that she immediately went outside, confronted Jordan, asked him what he had done to the baby, she states that Jordan responded by denying having hurt the baby. She further states that she went back into the house, picked the baby up, brought the baby into her bedroom. She states that she cleaned the blood off the baby's mouth and removed the gown. She then called Jordan into the house and asked him to take she and the baby to the hospital she states that she wrapped the baby up in a pink and white and blue striped blanket and put the baby's gown inside the blanket with the baby. She states that she did this as she thought the gown might be needed at the hospital. She states that she and Jordan then left the house with Jordan driving the car and she riding passenger holding the baby. After departing the house, she states that Instead of Jordan turning towards the hospital, he turned in the opposite direction. And when, question, when she questioned him as to where he was going, he told her they could not bring the baby to the hospital, as if they did, she would probably go to jail. Jordan then drove to the bridge and took the baby away from her, throwing the baby off the bridge into the river. She states that they then returned home. Once arriving at the house, she states that she went inside, woke up her son Rodney, and told him what happened. She states that she told no one else other than Rodney. In the polygraph recordings, there were significant emotional disturbances which are usually indicative of deception when Ms. McKnight answered the following list of questions. One, on or about July the 15th, did you harm Matthew Poppleson in any way? She answered no, deception indicated. 
two, on or about July 15th, did you cause the death of Matthew Popperless? She just said no. Boom, failed. Deception indicated. On or about July 15th, did you deliberately injure Matthew Popperless in any way? No. Boom, failed. Deception indicated. On or about July 15th, did you throw Matthew Popperless off that bridge? No. Boom, yeah, lying bitch. She failed it. Is the opinion of this, of course, that, that's me adding that in, y'all. This is his opinion. Is the opinion of this polygraphist, based upon Miss McKnight's polygraph examination, that she is not telling the entire truth to the above listed questions? As per the request of Miss McKnight's attorney, Pequa Edwards, no post test interview was conducted, and therefore she was not confronted with the fact that deception was noted on the polygraph examination. Respectfully submitted, Don Zolke. All right, let's talk about that. All right, so yes, went to jail, okay? And you know now you're under arrest for obstruction of justice. You know now, I'm sure in some way, that Rodney, your own son, finally ratted you out. So now she turns it around to she got up. Now, remember, she's supposed to have this tubal reversal, unfixed thing, whatever they call it, so she can have kids again. And she's supposed to be bedridden, but she just happens to get up and nobody else was up except for Bobby Jordan, who is jacking off over Matthew Populus. And she confronts him, and he was like, oh, I'm on my way to the bathroom. And he sits back down. She looks down, sees that he's got a bottle, and she goes back to bed. What the fuck? Are you serious? You actually saw him beating off over a kid who's in your care, and you don't at least bring the kid to the, to the bedroom with you? Then later on... She goes out and sees the injuries to the baby. Bobby Jordan had to cause him because nobody else was up. And then she takes Rodney out of the equation uh, as far as being accessory to whatever you want to call it by going to the bridge because she says he forced me. Uh, he told me we're going to the hospital, and then he forced me to go down, and I watched him throw the baby off the bridge. Crawfishing, y'all. She's backing up, changing her story to fit the narrative that goes in her mind. Well, fuck her. That's what I got to say. And and when she did take her polygraph, she already had her attorney. Uh, and it is what it is. I don't know. And and but you know, that polygraph's just ice on cake. That bitch was lying the whole time. And and I don't know about Bobby Jordan. I don't know if they did something together. I don't know how you have another grown ass man living on your couch when you're married, even though it's a common law husband and you got a house full of kids. I mean, mm, that sounds a little funny sexually to me regardless. Um, but let me tell you what happens next. And I'll try to conclude this today. Bobby Jordan gets released in sufficient evidence let's talk about that now you've come in after the fact the only person who pins bobby jordan to the baby at all was was first was well it was evelyn and 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 then when rodney gives his initial statement well, not in his initial statement but the statement before uh his polygraph he says the same thing that you know bobby was masturbating but that he went, and Bobby made him help him get that one off the bridge. Well, then Evelyn comes back in her polygraph and gives her own narrative again that she can't be questioned on. And she says that she came back 
after watching Bobby Jordan throw the baby off the bridge, and she wakes up Rodney, who's 12 now. This motherfucker ain't 27. You know, he's fucking 12 years old, and he's all up in the middle of this shit. She wakes him up. This is her version. She wakes him up and says, oh, Bobby killed the baby and threw him off the bridge. I mean, the fuck out of here, man. And so what you have is a whole world of shit when, when the case on Bobby Jordan. You don't have dick. The, 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 the only people saying that he was, he was masturbating or they threw him off the bridge were Rodney and Evelyn. And guess what? Both of them changed the fucking story. But Rodney changed it from he and uh, Bobby threw him off the bridge to me and my mama threw him off the bridge. And then Evelyn changes it from Bobby and, Rod and Rodney throw him off the bridge to me and Bobby throw him off the bridge. And fuck, he walks. Free man. Can you believe that shit? I don't know how, how you hurt a baby like that and get him out of the house and go throw him off the bridge and Bobby Jordan sleeping on the couch and he doesn't know something. But you know what? Evelyn McKnight fucked that case up. So, and, and she fucked it up good by having Rodney lie numerous times, whatever. I can't tell you if it was Rodney, but I, I believe I believe Rodney's story in the end, which is that his mom, he woke up and saw his mom with the baby injured, and she says, I'm going to fucking prison. And, you know, they went and threw him alive off the bridge, man. And, and guess what? Bobby Jordan walks free. We never know if he had anything to do with it. So let's fast forward a little bit. Then this bitch decides she's going to take it to trial. All right? And I'm not going to go in. We could do 10 more episodes on this. The, but there was such publicity. Now, remember, this is before the Internet. And it's we got worldwide coverage. I mean, it's a big, big story. And uh, the person I'm going to have on uh, talk about it, she can tell you all about it because she was there. It's a big, big story. It's the only time that I've ever heard of a case being moved out of Livingston Parish due to news coverage. Now, back then, if it, shit, if it had been, if it had Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that bullshit like they have today, you couldn't have had that case anywhere in the world because it would have been, every, you know, like everything's instant access now, right, on, especially on crimes. But so they move it to Covington, Louisiana. And for y'all who don't know, that's like two parishes over, uh, St. Tammany Parish. And they pick a jury and they go in, this stupid bitch. I, first of all, not trying her for murder. Let's back that up. They, the, the, she goes on trial for obstruction of justice. Not trying her for first degree murder? When you got the, the you know, the, the, the dead baby in... Tanchpo Parish that she was in, she was in control of, and the burn baby and stuff like that. And I submit, I bet you there's more. I bet you there's kids that she had that she just slapped the shit out of or hit them where they can't talk. You know, I'm not without leaving marks, but it doesn't matter. The, the she she and Rodney f fucked up the case. I guess the district attorney felt the the waters were so muddied by the lies that had been told and the lack of physical evidence, et cetera, that they never pursued murder charges on her. I don't get it. But anyway, they moved the trial to Covington, two parishes over. She goes in and it'll save you a whole bunch of your lifetime uh, um, telling you all the shit I just told you, basically. She gets found guilty of obstruction of justice and they bring her back 
and they sentence her to the maximum, 40 years in prison. All right? So let's talk about that. I got some follow-up information. I do have to read some of the show. That would have been like 95, I think, when her trial, 95, maybe 96, by the time all the legal wrangling's done. So the first one thing I'm going to read you is this. And this is how this story keeps continuing to be a tragedy. On January 13, 2002, now Evelyn McKnight's been locked up, or the nanny's been locked up for probably seven years. Listen to this shit. This is baby Matthew's mama, Robin Populous. I'm going to read you this news article. Mother in Populous case dead. January 13, 2002. Robin Populous Garon, a prominent figure in the most infamous Livingston Parish homicide of modern times, died Wednesday in Baton Rouge after a lengthy illness. The mother of Matthew Populous, the infant thrown off a bridge by his babysitter in July 1994, suffered from myelodysplasia, a rare blood disease, according to family members. She was 29. Babysitter Evelyn McKnight was sentenced to 40 years in prison for obstruction of justice in a capital murder case after she misled investigators for days into believing that 22-month-old populace had wandered away from her home on George White Road. Investigators later determined that McKnight had thrown the toddler's body off a bridge, but because of the delay in the finding the remains were, naval, were never able to prove a cause of death. That's not true, it was drowning. The case generated such widespread publicity in Livingston Parish that McKnight's trial was moved to Covington. Following the tragedy, Robin Populous married again and had another son. Her, her immediate survivors include husband Richard Garon and son Richard Ricky Garon of Albany, religious service schedule, such and such. All right, so what a freaking tragedy, man. It's just a tragedy. I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I, God rest her soul is all I can say, and her and the baby are together. Y'all, my hearts go out to all the victims in this, from the, from the burned baby to the baby that died in Tangerville Parish to to Matthew and poor even Rodney in a way because he's he got screwed by his own mama. All right, so let me read you the next article. This is some years later, seven years after Robin, the mama of the baby, dies. Now, remember I told you that the grandmother, right when uh, she found out that they had found, that's the first tragedy of it, that they when the grandmother finds out they found baby Matthew's body, she dies, heart attack, and they they waked them together, uh, baby Matthew and her. Then the mama dies seven years later. But on April 17, 2009, the board denies parole for Evelyn McKnight. A woman who was sentenced to 40 years in prison for obstruction of justice in the 1994 death of 22 Month-old Livingston Parish boy was denied early release by the Louisiana Parole Board. In 1998, a jury convicted. So y'all did take a while. 1998, 1998. That's correct. A jury convicted babysitter Evan McKnight of interfering with the investigation. She is suspected of throwing the body of Matthew Poppins into the Tickfall River. To this day, it is still not known exactly who killed Matthew, but investigators believe McKnight was connected to his death though she was never charged with the boy's murder. 
McKnight misled investigators for six days as they searched for populace 15 years ago. McKnight has since served 11 years in prison, but Matthew's father says that's not enough. At his home in Holden, Dwight Hodges shuffled through a box filled with old articles about his son's death, albums, and toys. He not only reflected on the past, but said he fears the future. That's what the judge sends her, and I hope it sticks, he said. Give her the full term. Don't let her out. Keep her in. Let her serve the full term. I don't care if she's 70 or 80 when she gets out. She knows what she did was wrong. Holding back tears, Hodges said he hasn't slept well in the days leading up to the parole hearing. He said he probably wouldn't sleep at all Thursday night. A lot of people have been praying that tomorrow comes out a good deal for me. Just have to wait and see, he said. Tragic, right? So she didn't get it then, y'all, but stay tuned because I got a little more shit to read. Now, I want to read you this. I made some reference to uh, Casey Anthony. And, and now she was, of course, her trial came about um, in a time when, you know, we did have the Internet, right? So I'm going to read you this article by Mike Dowdy, D-O-W-T-Y. And this was on July 9th, 2011. It says... July 15, 1994, was a hot summer day, much like the ones we've been having lately. It was on that quiet Friday morning when word began to spread of a missing toddler in the Holden area. His name was Matthew Populus. Today, I wonder how many people remember that name. Certainly anyone who was an adult back, back then in Livingston Parish or within range of the Baton Rouge News channels would recall it. Yet I'm sure many under 30 might struggle to recollect the case that became for the rural Florida parishes a decade and a half ago, what the recently concluded Casey Anthony trial has been to this summer's American TV viewers. So if you never knew who Matthew Poplis was, if you never heard of Evan McKnight, settle down for a little gothic history from George White Road. Though the players in these two trials arrived to their hot seats from very different worlds, the sordid evil they share in common is striking. Matthew Poplis ended his short life the same way poor little Kaylee Anthony shrouded in mystery. Casey Anthony, the glamorous Florida defendant, just acquitted of murdering her daughter, will be getting out of jail this week to the shock and outrage of the world. Evan McKnight, the woman believed to have killed Matthew Poplis, remains in prison. Both led authorities on a wild goose chase to cover their tracks. Both pointed fingers to falsely accuse others and both stonewalled on the ultimate question through withering interrogations without ever cracking. These relentless liars are two remarkably cold human beings. The biggest difference between their sto two stories is the legal outcome. One was tried for murder and beat the rap. The other for obstruction of justice that netted her the 40-year maximum sentence. Prosecutors in Florida went for the whole enchilada against Casey Anthony, and they were stunned to discover that most of the individuals in panel and jury, it turned out, were born yesterday. Marsha Clark, the lead prosecutor who suffered the unanimous defeat in the original O.J. Simpson murder trial, wrote that the Anthony verdict was worse. The O.J. case turned on the race card and racial resentments exhibited by a mostly black Los Angeles County jury. The Anthony jurors had no such access to grind. They simply took the words of reasonable doubt to a tortured extreme. This fastidiousness rendered them unable to connect the bizarre behavior of their defendant to her obvious guilt. 
Perhaps the prosecution should have foreseen this. I'm not sure how the obstruction laws in Florida work, but here in Louisiana, a person does not get the benefit of the doubt for misleading police in a capital murder investigation. McKnight prevented authorities from recovering the body of the toddler in her care and in time to determine how he died. That's because she threw the kid off a bridge into the Tickfall River and then lied for six days. She told the world the infant had wandered off, maybe kidnapped, been molested by a house guest. That depends on what day she was asked the question. Unlike Casey Anthony, the mother who tried to finger a fictitious babysitter, McKnight was not the mother, but a babysitter. Matthew's mother, Robin Garon, who is now deceased, chose to leave her child with McKnight to go bar hopping. That's not exactly mother of the year behavior, but sadly, it isn't all that rare. The next morning, McKnight's daughter and niece discovered that Matthew was missing from the home. For several days, law enforcement officers and numerous volunteers conducted an intensive search of the woods nearby to locate the child. McKnight first told authorities she did not know what had happened to Matthew. Then her son, Rodney, told investigators that he witnessed a house guest, Bobby Jordan, throw the child into the Tickfall River. This helped authorities find the body, and momentarily, Jordan faced a murder charge. Yet after continued questioning, Rodney finally fessed up that, in fact, it was his mother who had done the deed. McKnight then changed her story claiming she found Matthew bleeding and unconscious and wanted to take the child to the hospital, but Jordan refused to drive there. Instead, he drove to a bridge where he threw the child into the river. By this time, her pathological lying was all too obvious. McKnight was so notorious by the time her case came to trial that her attorneys received a change of venue to Covington, where a jury of 12 strangers voted unanimously to send her away. Some people criticized prosecutors then for not pressing for a murder conviction. The A. Scott Perlou was no doubt motivated by a legitimate concern that a jury might not be willing to swallow murder since it was unclear to this day how or why Matthew Poplis died. What just happened in Florida may have vindicated his decision. So, man, and I, I, you know, I get it. And I think Scott Perlou is, a, is a, um, I mean, he's a friend of mine. He's a, he's a you know, He's a good DA, but nobody wants to lose, especially on probably their most infamous case. And so guess what? Statute of limitations on murder never goes away. And I'm going to tell you something that I heard is really disturbing from a member of Matthew's family. Now, I met his half-brother, but he wasn't the one that told me this. It was another family member that told me they said they saw Evelyn McKnight at the Strawberry Festival like a year or so ago, right before COVID, uh, whenever it was, meaning that she's free. They said that she got free because the next time she came up parole for parole, Mr. Garon was dead and there was nobody there to stand up for baby Matthew. And she's out. I don't know if that's true. I'm just telling you what they told me. But I can tell you this. If she's out, don't let her be the nanny for your kids. And the statute of limitations on murder never runs out. And I would love, love, love to sit down with Rodney and interview him now that he's an adult. Think about that. So that was 94, 2004, 16, and 12. Shit, he's 38 years old. 
So I'm sure he doesn't have a reason to talk. But Matthew's dead. Nobody's ever served a day of prison time for his murder. It's crazy, y'all. I think I'm going to do one more. I may put up a Patreon, but it's, it's, I'm going to interview somebody who was there through the whole deal, and, and she has a lot of insight. But I don't know. You know, just do not let her be your nanny, period. And, and if she is out, I'm sure she's on parole. 40 years would have been, uh, it would start at the time back in 95, so 40 years would have been 2005. 15, 25, like 2035. So, I mean, if she's out, which I, I don't know if I believe that, but if she is and she's got a long-ass time to serve on, on probation and parole, and I'm sure she has conditions where she's not supposed to be around kids and shit like that. But this is just one fucked-up story. And all of us that have kids know it. My heart goes out to the family, all the families, actually, and uh, of, of the victims uh, in the cases, and you know, I can read you more stuff about the Tangipo case and all that, but I'm not going to do it today. But I hope y'all enjoyed this series. There may be one follow up. Uh, I'll let you know next week, and we'll include Nanny Knight. With that being said, let's talk about a couple things. RRC, our app, y'all. We're almost in the beta testing phase, and it's going to be fire. We're going to have everything under one spot, and it's not going to cost you a dime. It, they will have upgrades in the app, like, you know, like Patreon stuff. But if you don't want to, you still get to go there. You'll get everything that's on Facebook crew pages. You'll get everything. You get all of this content that we have over, like, nine different pages now, and including Patreon members. It'll, it'll have the scheduling for your free gifts and stuff like that. We won't have to worry about that anymore. But it's going to be so much more than that all kinds of articles and then you'll have forums where you can talk and we don't have to worry about getting censored by Facebook or anybody else and all that. So pretty exciting thing and we're investing a lot of money and time into it, but we're doing it and I think it's going to be fabulous. The only other true crime podcast in the world that has an app is Sword and Scale. You know, I know how big they've been forever. Uh, Mike Boudet. All right, and once again, say thank you, Patreon. show wouldn't run without you. Let's talk about if you own a business and you want to advertise, hit us up. Email, the word email, E-M-A-I-L dot Cindy, C-Y-N-D-I, at realliferealcrime.com. We do it every week. If you're not a Patreon member, you know you get your commercials. We do it for all these national companies. Let us do it for you. And we have a wide variety of options on, on ways the conversation can be paid, okay? Also, the running boards marketing, y'all. we got rolling real-life, real-crime billboards rolling around Baton Rouge and surrounding areas every day. If you see it and you can safely take a picture, do it and, and post it to social media. I'd like to know where it's at and, and who saw it. And I've, there's some, several people have sent me pictures already, and I just think it's really cool. And <sighs> Gateway Inc., y'all, again, that's the, the, the nonprofit corporation that helps autistic adults from one end of the spectrum to the other. They, they work with them to develop 
life skills and job skills, et cetera. Now, look, again, I told you, I, I know an attorney who's autistic, right? And she's she's smarter and shit, but she has autism, but she's on one end of the spectrum. All of a sudden, they people on the other end of the spectrum who can barely take care of themselves. But they find out where, where they fit in the range. And then the Gateway Inc. is actually a company, a printing company, and that's where they put... Uh, a lot of them go, you know, and have jobs, and that they do all our, our T-shirts and all that stuff from from the designs. They design our koozies and all this different stuff. And they came to the crew bash. They came to my um, meet and greet at Lachine and and sold the merch for us. We love them, y'all. If you need something printed, hit up Gateway Inc. Those are our people. They are so freaking awesome. And this was started by a daddy who. Uh, was an attorney, is an attorney, whose son w- was reaching the age where he was going into the workforce and there really wasn't a lot out there for him to do it, but now it's a big deal. And they're helping, they're changing lives every day and, and giving these adults a chance to having a better life. So Gateway Inc., it's a nonprofit. If you need something printed, go to them, and that's not a commercial. That's Woody over and say, I love those people. They're doing great stuff. And finally, last but not least, and I'm sure I've been getting some... But last but not least, LOPA, Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. Y'all, take two seconds and go to www.lopa.org and sign up to be an organ donor. Give the gift of life. Be a hero, man. Help improve lives when they do a lot of Just the chances that your organs are ever going to get used are almost non-existing. I mean, I can't say that. They're very, very low. But if they do, who gives a shit? You're going to be dead, right? And and meanwhile, your stuff can go up to other people and help them live, especially now with the COVID and all these double lung transplants and all that stuff. It's such a shortage, and people are dying every day. And if you, you're going to be dead, and they're going to take you off life support. You're not going to be needing your shit anyway. So love Lopa. And if you're a listener, you don't have to be from Louisiana. If you're a listener in Anchorage, Alaska, you can sign up under lopa.org, okay? So I love and appreciate each and every one of you. You rock. That's going to conclude this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And I'm Woody Overton, your host. And until next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on Murder by You. Peace. is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Template.